try to get around anybody like sports and talk to them about basketball or football for just a second, then they're probably going to want to know who you think the GOAT is. And so you might say, well, I think Tom Brady is the GOAT in football. And then, because they've got some weird jealousy thing with a grown man they've never met, they're still trying to argue he's not, even though he's won seven championships, you know what I mean? And so they'll deny it. And then you have you know, a little fight about it being Joe Montana or Dan Marino or whatever. My point is, these discussions typically go nowhere. And the reason is, is you have your standards of what greatness is, right? You come to the table with your presuppositions of what would make an athlete great. And then somebody else comes to the table with their presuppositions about what makes an athlete great. And because you have these different standards of greatness, arguments ensue and both people walk away exasperated and minds have not been changed because the subjective definitions of greatness make those conversations maddening. Unless you enjoy confrontation, to which you might say, no, that's what makes it interesting. But people will have arguments like this in sports radio and in church hallways, and they don't just do it with sports, we do it about all sorts of things. And this morning, we go to Luke 22, and we see Jesus has a standard for greatness. But my standards for greatness, while I might have some subjective standards for greatness, they really don't matter. His standards for greatness matter because he is God in the flesh. So when Jesus says, this is what greatness is, that is not his subjective opinion on what greatness is. When it comes out of his mouth, it's objective. These are the standards for greatness. And what we've got to make sure of this morning is that we are operating and, and, and using the standards that Jesus has for greatness as we are living our lives and as we are pursuing greatness and that we are not operating on the subjective standards of the world. What we read this morning is taking place right on the back of the institution of the Lord's Supper, which we saw last week. You might think these disciples would have responded to the Passover meal with songs and worship and prayer, but their most immediate response is to have a fight about which one of them is the greatest. And on the surface, this seems pretty offensive. And to be honest, once we dig into it, it's still offensive. It's still incredibly offensive. But their offense gives opportunity for some important words from Jesus for us to take to heart today. And so I'm going to start reading for us in Luke 22, verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And when they began to question one another, uh, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which, one, uh, of which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Father God, ultimately uh, I speak with no authority except that which your word gives me, and um, Lord, uh, the only useful things that I'll say today are the things that come from your spirit. And so 
I pray that you would be in control and in charge, uh, not only with me here from, from this pulpit, but you would be with uh, our, our church members, Lord, the people who are here this morning, sitting, Bibles open, ready to hear from you, God. Give us ears to hear. And uh, Lord, light up the word so that we could see it with our eyes and understand it. Apply it to our lives and see real change for your glory in our lives this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the first Lord's Supper ends, Jesus announces he will be betrayed by someone within the twelve, by someone whose hand is on the table, and of course, this is Judas. Now, you might stop right here and you might say, well, I'm a little confused, because why is Judas even there at this point? Like, is he still hanging out? Is he still in the scene? In fact, one of our church members came to me this past Monday, and we sat down in my office, and she had this question. I thought, well, that's actually a really great question, and we got out some books, and as we put our heads together on it, uh, here's where I think we both ended up landing. Matthew, Mark, and, uh, well, Matthew and Mark, they, they really don't tell us, okay? They, they don't tell us if Judas got up and he left the upper room before the Lord's Supper is instituted by Jesus, okay? But John... He seems to hint that Judas does leave before the supper is instituted. Uh, that Jesus dips bread in wine and he says, the one that I hand this to, that's who is betraying me. And that this takes place before the Lord's Supper and then he leaves. And yet here we have Luke who seems to be talking about Judas's hand being on the table after the Lord's Supper. And so what's going on? When did Judas leave? Well, I think that what's going on is Luke has actually taken verses 21 and 22 and broken them out of sequence. It is likely that Jesus says these words before the Lord's Supper, okay? But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It seems to make sense that, that this actually took place before the Lord's Supper. Luke broke it out of order, and he has put it here after the Lord's Supper, which, by the way, is not odd behavior for Luke. Every now and then in his gospel, Luke will take things out of sequence because he likes to organize events by topic. He likes to organize events by theme. So he doesn't always tell them in order. Why would Luke do that here? Does he have a reason? Well, absolutely. Because this argument that's happening in verses 24 through 30 is so ludicrous, so offensive, it, it makes your head spin going, how in the world could you have an argument like this on the back of the Passover meal with the Lord, on the back of the institution of the Lord's Supper? Well, Luke is giving us some context. I think he's wanting us to understand that Jesus said this before the Lord's Supper, and then it's likely that Judas gets up and leaves, because Jesus isn't going to have an unbeliever hanging out as he's instituting the Lord's Supper. Um, however, before he left, right, Judah, uh, Jesus had said, someone's going to betray me. And if the disciples had started to bicker about who that might be, it's easy to see how even after Judas left, that argument might carry over. And so the argument's so ludicrous that Luke is saying, hey, here's, here's where it came from. Okay, so in terms of order... It seems like Jesus announces the betrayal will happen. He signifies it is Judas at the appropriate time by handing him a piece of dip bread. Judas leaves. The Passover meal is eaten. The Lord's Supper is instituted. And then the disciples go, let's pick that argument back up. 
I've still got some things to say, right? And they begin to argue. Uh, it spills over from the speculation about who the betrayer will be. And you can imagine how that pre-dinner speculation uh, that's talked about in verse 23 probably went. I mean, you can almost hear it, right? Well, it's not me. How do you know? It could be you. I didn't like the way you looked at Jesus earlier. Maybe it is you. You know, like you, you could see how this would come about. How a lively discussion would take place that would then carry over into a post-dinner dispute about who is the greatest among them. Right? Even after the Lord's Supper is done, you can imagine one of them going, well, I just want to say that even though we now know it's Judas, I didn't really appreciate the way that Thomas accused me. So I would like to say something about that. You can see how it would spill over. This whole scene in verse 23, where they are discussing who is going to betray him is one thing. But the dispute about greatness, the full-on argument that breaks out after they already know it's Judas, this is a slap in the face of the Lord. Right after he gives them this memorial meal that symbolizes the sacrifice he is about to make with his own body and with his own blood, they break out in this epic display of narcissism. You might even try to excuse it on some level and say, well, they didn't understand the full meaning of the Lord's Supper. We, we just took the Lord's Supper and we've got the benefit of having the completed New Testament, having 1 Corinthians 11, um, having a sermon about it last week, right? And so we're able to come to the table and say, yes, we know what to do. We remember, we commune, we anticipate. This is what we are going to do. They didn't have that. They didn't have the completed New Testament. Well, that's fair, but they did understand the Passover, to finish the Passover meal and to begin arguing about greatness reeks of the Israelites being rescued in Egypt and then almost immediately complaining and wanting to go back. Now, if I could take just an apologetic sidebar here, I will say that this is one of the arguments for the accuracy of the Bible. That the, the writers of the Bible relayed events to us accurately as they took place. This scene makes Luke's friends look terrible. Why include it? Because it happened. Luke is telling us what happened, just as he promised to do all the way back in chapter 1 when he said that he was compiling a narrative of events. But the gospel writers often tell stories that make the disciples look terrible. Even the actual disciples tell those stories in Matthew and in John. We think that that Mark is actually uh, probably Peter's biography of Jesus as told to Mark, and Mark includes plenty that doesn't make Peter look great. If the disciples all look like brave action heroes in these stories, you could scrutinize it and say that the men who wrote the Bible whitewashed the history to make themselves look good, but instead you get the opposite. There's times where they just look like dolts. And it stands as proof that they are not concerned about whitewashing history. They're concerned about accuracy. They're concerned about telling us what actually took place. But all that being said, this argument is not good. It's not good at any time, but it's especially hard to stomach on the heels of Jesus saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so Jesus corrects the disciples' collective understanding in verse 25. He says the Gentile kings exercise lordship over those under their authority, and they are called benefactors. So the emperors and the kings and the rulers of the ancient world, they were famous for being domineering 
and, and unrelenting rulers. Because back then, if you did something just evil, deplorable, terrible, it didn't end up on CNN. The UN didn't have a meeting about it. You know what I mean? You just did it. And unless somebody came along and said, I am bigger and I'm more powerful than you and I don't like that you do this, I'm going to stop it. Well, then you kept doing it, right? As long as you wanted to until you died or until somebody else took charge. That's just the way it was. So they would tax people too high. They'd work the people too much. They set up a top-down system so that the ruling powers would stay the ruling powers. And then yet, as, even though they were domineering, even though they were brutal, they would run around and they would say that uh, they deserve titles like your grace, your royal munificence, right? Benefactor. And so this takes us to our first teaching point. As the disciples are arguing about what greatness is, and then Jesus comes in and he explains the definitions of greatness according to the world, we get our first teaching point. Number one, true greatness is not in step with the world's definition of greatness. Clearly, from Jesus' words, we can see that in the world, greatness is having power, greatness is having position, greatness is having privilege, greatness is having success, and greatness is at least having the appearance of being a benefactor of being kind and generous. The verbatim dictionary definition from Merriam-Webster, greatness is the quality or state of being great as in size, skill, achievement, power. You can feign virtue. You can act like you're generous. You can act like you're beneficial to the people around you. You can act like you are in kind. But, but people that are in power often disingenuously uh, present themselves this way just so they can keep the power. So they can keep up the appearance of greatness. So they can make sure they go to bed with the biggest size, the best skills, the top achievements, the most power. It's reminiscent of Queen Mary I of England, better known as Bloody Mary. She saw to it that hundreds of Protestants were burned at the stake, and yet she was still known by all the titles of exaltation you would expect. Her Majesty, Your Majesty, the Queen. One of the most horrible and brutal rulers to ever take power on this earth, but she was spoken of as if she was this kind and benevolent monarch. It wasn't real. She just kept the image up enough to keep herself in power. Jesus has a different way for his disciples. They are not to trod on people and to spend their time trying to grab power and position and privilege and then run around claiming titles that make them seem virtuous, even if they're brutal. And that is why he says at the beginning of verse 26, but not so with you. This is how the world defines greatness. This is how the world operates, but not so with you. You're not to be like the rulers of the ancient world. You are to be out of step. You are to break out of step with the way that the world defines greatness. And what's implied is that we need to get in step with Jesus' definition of greatness. And so let's turn to his measurements. Instead of operating with the world's definition of greatness, God's people are to count the greatest among us as the one who becomes like the youngest and the one who serves. The youngest in the Jewish household had the least enviable, uh, enviable position. You had no authority. You had no ability to govern or decide what's going to happen with the household. And you had less of a share of the inheritance. 
The, old, the older brother got two-thirds. You got a third. They were, in a sense, last in the household. So when Jesus says the greatest among you is the one who becomes like the youngest, he is commanding humility from his disciples. When he says become like the youngest in verse 26, he's demanding humility. And then in verse 27, he says, for who is greater, one who reclines at table or the one who serves? And at the end of verse 26, um, he says, let the leader be as one who serves. So he's demanding humility and he is demanding servanthood. The service is certainly a reference to those who would wait tables at meals like the one they are attending. Formal meal settings where a servant would wash the feet of the guests and tend to their every need throughout the meal. It was a very, very low position in Jewish society. And to the point of Jesus' question in verse 27, there's no chance that anybody ever would have thought that the one who is serving is greater than the one who is reclining and eating. Like, I, I'm not an alien guy, all right? I don't believe in aliens. We can argue about that after if you want, but, okay? I, I just don't. Um, but let's say, just for kicks and giggles, okay, that some flying saucer came to this earth and little green people with big eyes and silver suits got out and they observed our culture. If they just go and walk into Outback Steakhouse tonight, you know what I'm saying? And they just look at the scene and they see people bringing out food and serving it to others, who do you think they're going to believe is more powerful? You and I know better. Like, that person serving the food could probably have the money to just as easily sit down and eat at this place as the person that's eating here at Outback. You know what I mean? But they wouldn't know that. They would think, well, these are the people in charge. They're getting served. And Jesus says it's not like that in his kingdom. That the one who serves... That's the great one in his kingdom. So teaching point number two, true greatness is defined by humility and servanthood. True greatness is defined by humility and servanthood. You'll notice that Jesus then says, but I am among you as the one who serves at the end of verse 27. He does not want his disciples to look to Caesar and say, well, Caesar's great, so let me model my life after Caesar. And he, he doesn't want them to run around, uh, go down to the synagogue, try to find one of the rabbis down there and say, well, he's great, I'm going to model my life like him. He is setting himself up as the model for greatness for his kingdom and for his church. He is saying, you don't need to go anywhere else. It's right here. It's right here. I am among you as the one who serves. He is displaying his greatness before them through his own humility and his own servanthood. Humility and servanthood were marks of Jesus' life and ministry. We know that the position of Christ is one of exaltation. John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So before time, the Father and the Son shared glory with one another. Then we get to Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So when you go to Genesis 1 and you read, in the beginning, God... God's act of creation in Genesis 1, um, the power behind it is the Son of God, Jesus. The divine Son is creating. And then in Colossians 1, uh, verse 18, 
And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might pre be preeminent. So he is the head of the church. So he's got this pre-incarnate glory that he shares with the Father from before time. And he is the creator and he is head over the church. Now, we could go on about the exalted position of Jesus, but you can see that Jesus is number one, right? Jesus is the star of the show. Jesus is the one that deserves the spotlight. And yet, this glorious God crossed the boundary of heaven and earth and entered into our world and humbled himself. He deserved his pre-incarnate exalted position, but he left to come and subject himself to all the suffering of this life that you and I experience. This is humility. We say all the time, like we, we do funerals, you know, and we rightly say, if so-and-so was here and they had the choice, they wouldn't come back. And a lot of times, I think that's a comforting thing to hear their, you know, for their family members who are left behind to hear, to know that they are a believer, they're in glory, and even if they gave the were given the choice, and even though they love me, they wouldn't come back here because Jesus is that great. But he left the glory of heaven to come and subject himself to the suffering of this life. He made that choice. And he was a servant. He showed the servanthood in the upper room. One of the most important books I own, one that I got out this week when that church member came and said, so when did Judas leave? And we're trying to figure that out. We got out A.T. Robertson's Harmony of the Gospels. The man who baptized me, Pastor David Slayton, gave that to me. And what that book is, is just he takes Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and he gives you uh, a, a, an order, a sequential order. He puts it all in order for you. So it's just like you know, one big story of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if A.T. Robertson is right, and I think he is, then John 13, 1 through 5 happens before the institution of the Lord's Supper. And this is what it says. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So keep in mind, Jesus has just told his disciples they need to be like table servants. And keep in mind that table servants at a meal like this would have been slaves in that society. And then keep in mind that before this supper even happened, that Jesus did the work of a table servant. Before he ever looks at him and says, the greatest among you must be like a servant, before he ever says that, he's already modeled it for him. Because before they ate, he got up, and he put on a towel, and he washed their feet, even the feet of the one who would betray him. He's not just teaching them, he's showing them. He is showing them his character. He is showing them the mission of his life. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
He is showing his servanthood by washing their feet. And then just minutes later after the meal, he says, you want to be great? Then you must be a servant. If we're going to take one section of scripture that we would point to and say it really captures the humility and the servanthood of Christ, I think we have to go to Philippians 2. The Philippians seem to have a problem in their church with unity and with complaining. I've never heard of a church like that. I mean, I don't know what was wrong with these people, but Paul writes to them and he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who deserves nothing but eternal praise, served us by humbling himself and dying in our place, by bearing our curse for us. And so you can point to his words, you can point to the foot washing, we can point to his healing, his compassion, any of those things, and we certainly can identify the humility in the servanthood of Christ. But listen, nothing captures the humility in the servanthood of Christ like the cross. The cross shows us the humility of Jesus because he is willing to submit to the will of the Father and to die for the salvation of the church. And to be punished for sin he did not commit. But it shows the servanthood of Christ because Jesus did a work for us there. He did a priestly work. But he was not serving us the way that the Levites did or the way that Aaron did by throwing the blood of bulls and goats against the altar. He was serving us by throwing his own blood against the altar. And he was serving us in this way so we could have access to the Father. The glorious access to the Father that the Son has enjoyed for all of eternity. Jesus is the greatest man that has ever lived. So we should not be surprised that he's also the most humble man that's ever lived and the most serving man who's ever lived because that is what greatness is. He defines it for us and then he says, I'm your model. You don't need to look any further than me for an example of a great life. One of the greatest preachers of the gospel in the history of the Western world is George Whitfield. Whitfield, in a lot of ways, was the first American celebrity. They say that 80% of the American colonists knew who George Whitfield was. Our best estimation is that George Whitfield preached 18,000 sermons and that over 10 million people in Great Britain and in the colonies actually heard him preach, which is Stunning numbers for that time, right? It was said that he could preach to thousands of people at one time, and he had such a booming voice that without the, the, the modern uh, you know, conveniences of a microphone, everyone could hear him. And so Ben Franklin heard the rumor, and he said, that's ridiculous. He said, there's no man that's got a voice that's that loud that 18,000-some people could hear him at one time. That's ridiculous. And then Ben Franklin went and heard the man preach, and he said, I was wrong. He said, one man can have a voice that loud. In fact, he was so impressed, Ben Franklin became the first one to print Whitfield sermons. So one of the most famous men in the world, the great preacher of his generation, achievements on top of achievements. 
But what kind of man was George Whitfield? Did he run around banging his chest saying, I'm the greatest preacher in the Western world. People in the colonies know me. People in Great Britain know, uh, know me. I've preached 18,000 sermons, thousands of people. I've preached a million. Did he go around holding up his resume saying, look at me? Well, one of his good friends was Charles Wesley, and Charles Wesley wrote this about him after his death. He said, though long by following multitudes admired, no party for himself he e'er desired. His one desire to make the Savior known, to magnify the name of Christ alone. If others strove who should the greatest be, no lover of preeminence was he. Charles Wesley knew George Whitfield and knew that he was a good man worthy of a good eulogy, but the eulogy tells us that the goodness of Whitfield, the greatness of Whitfield, wasn't found in his accomplishments and his achievements. Charles Wesley recognized the greatness of Whitfield was found in his humility and in his servanthood. It was the fact that Whitfield wanted the spotlight off of him. He wanted it on Jesus. He wanted to work and to preach so that Jesus would get more attention. He didn't care about the name Whitfield. He cared about the name of Christ. This is what happens to those who walk with Jesus. Jesus takes men and women from narcissism and, and, and from an obsession with their own ego and their own advancement. And he, and, and he takes it and he tears it down and what he builds up in its place is an eagerness to make the name of Christ famous. To humbly serve in a way that will make Jesus look glorious. Jesus takes people from selfishness to selflessness. Because when you're saved by the cross, you reflect the cross. When you've been impacted by the cross, you reflect the cross to the world. You show the cross to the world with your own humility, your own servanthood. When you're saved by Christ, you reflect Christ by becoming as the youngest, by becoming as the table waiter. And by the way, not overnight. Selfishness and pride are roommates that take a long time to evict. Sometimes you evict them and then they just come back the next day. It's really frustrating. But if we are vigilant, to, uh, uh, vigilant to, to mortify the flesh, to put our boasting to death, then he will sanctify us. He will make us like him, humble and serving. That's a greatness worth pursuing. And it's worth pursuing not just because Jesus commands it, right? That's all we need. We get the command from him. He is Lord. He is master. We want to obey. But he is a good Lord and a good master. So he says, here's the command you need to obey. But on top of that, let me throw in some reward. So teaching point number three as we get to verses 28 through 30. True greatness is rewarded by God the Son. Verse 28 kind of takes an unexpected turn, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I, I'm kind of bracing for the rebuke. Hey, this is how, they're fighting, they're having this argument, it's totally inappropriate, right? Imagine if even just this morning, we got done at this table, and like seven of you in the back just broke out in an argument about who the greatest is. There would be people emailing me, being like, church discipline time, you know what I mean? Like, this is unacceptable, right? People would be really frustrated by that. So I'm expecting, as I read verse 28, that Jesus is going to come in and just be like, hey... This is how they act in the world. You're not going to act like this, and here is your punishment, right? 
Even if he just rebuked him with some sharp words, and we know that he can do that. We know that Jesus has some righteous, sharp words reserved for people who need him. He doesn't. He doesn't, he doesn't rip them up. He, he, he doesn't burn them down. He, he doesn't kick them out. Instead, he commends them and he makes a promise to reward them. He says that they have stayed with him in their trials. They've been loyal. They haven't abandoned him. Are these weak men? thousand percent. Are, 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 there, are, are they sinful men? Yes. They're sitting at the first Lord's Supper table having a fight about which one of them is the strongest or the greatest or the best. Yes, they are weak and sinful men, but as weak and as sinful as they are, they have been loyal to Jesus to the end. And they love him. And so Jesus makes promises to him. In verse 29, he promises that he has assigned a kingdom to them, just as, he is, uh, as the, the Father assigned to him. And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. The Father has granted the kingdom to the Son because the Son has been faithful to go on his mission of redemption and to complete it for the glory of the Father. So he has been faithful to be sent and to go and to complete his mission. Jesus did not run the other way like Jonah did from the Ninevites, right? He ran his race for the joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And for his faithfulness, he will get the kingdom. Luke 1, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And now Christ is promising to share the kingdom with us the same way the father shared it with him. In fact, he has promised it's the Father's joy to do so if we seek him first. Luke 12, verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so this is the first promise. The Father has given me a kingdom, and I'm going to share this kingdom with you. The second promise is in verse 30. He says he'll eat and drink at his table in the kingdom with the disciples. It's a reiteration of the promise in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Verse 16, Luke 22. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then again in verse 18. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. When Christ returns and consummates the kingdom... That will be celebrated with the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, and it will be the most joyous wedding reception that any of us will ever attend, and we should anticipate it every single day. We should. We should pray for it. We should long for it. We should talk about it. And then the third promise in verse 30 features the disciples sitting on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And there are some who believe this means that the disciples are going to be offered the ability to decide who is in the people of God and who is not in the people of God, to literally judge. I don't think Jesus means to be that specific. Tom Schreiner, uh, who is a professor at Southern uh, Baptist Seminary, says it uh, a lot better than me, so we'll read his words. The reference to Israel should probably, probably be understood symbolically so that the reference is to ruling over the people of God. 
So the bottom line, Jesus is getting across to the disciples. You stay with me, you're loyal, you, you, you say enough with the world's definitions of greatness, and you serve me through humility, right? If you do that, in the end, you will be a co-heir with me. If you suffer with me, you reign with me. That's what he's saying to them. You suffer with me, you'll reign with me. So he says, this is what greatness is not. This is what greatness is. I am the model of greatness. And if you walk in humility and servanthood after me, then I'm going to give you these rewards, which motivate us to pursue the greatness that he's modeled for us and to forsake the standards of greatness that the world has. Listen, I think people need this. I think we need this. Because as I was going through and I was uh, studying this and thinking about it, how does this apply to our lives? I mean, certainly uh, I could end this sermon by just saying to all of you, like, you need to serve, and here's the ways you can serve in the church. You need to be humble, and here's some evidences of humility in your life. We, we could do that. There's a time and place to do that. This won't be the last time, I hope, that we talk about humility and servanthood as a church body. But I started thinking a little bit more about the way people feel these days. Because I think that a lot of people are discontent, particularly in my generation, the maligned millennials. You hear so many millennials questioning their place in the world, discontent with their plot in life. Is this all there is? So I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about this text, and I was wondering, maybe we're so discontent because we're aiming at the wrong targets. We have allowed this culture and this society to define for us what greatness is. Greatness is having position. Greatness is being powerful. Greatness is being successful. Greatness is having privilege. So if you don't have the level of these things that you're supposed to have at 38, 39, 44, 57, whatever, you're discontent. And that's how a midlife crisis happens. Right? People get to this point in their life where they're like, well, hey, if I get the normal amount of years that people tend to get, this thing's about halfway done or more. And I take the world's definition of greatness, power, success, privilege, achievement, all those things, and I don't feel like I've done enough. Guess I'm not great. If I'm not great, maybe I'm just wasting this life. I don't measure up. And so what do people do? They buy a red Mustang. Because at least that's got the appearance of greatness, doesn't it? Even if I don't actually have power, even if I don't actually have privilege, even if I don't actually have success, that car will make people think that I do, and I'll feel a little bit better about myself, and maybe I won't be discontent for a week, or a month, or a year, until that's not enough to cover up the insufficiencies. But what if we were to switch our target and say greatness will not be defined by the world, but by Jesus? How much more content would we be to, to settle into an anonymous life? To wake up in the morning and put our pants on and do the work God has called us to do? If we live with a spouse to love them, if we have kids to raise them, put ourselves last, serve our family, serve our church, and then one day we breathe our last breath, everybody gets together in a room, they say nice things, they tell funny stories, 
They scatter us, they bury us, whatever it is they do with us. They put us on the mantle. And they move on. They remember us, they love us, but they move on. I think we can sign up for a life like that if we know that on the other side of the Jordan there's a kingdom, there's a table, and there's a throne being promised to us. All the things the world says you'll have now if you're great, Jesus says, humble yourself and serve me now and put yourself last. Be like the youngest, be like the table servant. And all those things that the world says you'll have if you're great, you'll actually have in my kingdom forever. You will get the kingdom and you'll sit with me at my table and if you suffer with me, you'll reign with me. The most content people that I know in this life are people who have bought in on Jesus' definition of greatness and they're living that life. I'm going to have the band return right now and uh, I say the band, it's just going to be Katie coming with Tim and, and Julie. They're going to lead us in a song, be a little more low-key here for this last song so we can really think about dedicating our hearts to the Lord, forsaking the world's idea of greatness. If, if you are living a life this morning where what you're chasing on a daily basis is not privilege and power and success and position, but on a daily basis you're going, I want to be humble and I want to serve. I want to be humble and I want to serve. And there are days that your ego starts to edge in and there's days you go to bed going, I wasn't great at it today. But for the most part, you can say the theme and the driving force of my life is I want to be humble and I want to, be, and, and I want to serve because Jesus says that's what greatness is. And so I want that and the rewards and the joy that come along with it. If you're chasing it, you know it. You know it. And so what I would say to you is just continue on. Press on. If you have a bad day tomorrow, confess your sin, and he is just and faithful to forgive it, and wake up Tuesday and chase it again. But if you're here this morning and you're going, I'm as discontent as ever. I'm miserable from living trying to live up to the world's standards of greatness and the world's definition. I am sick of the rat race. I am sick of feeling like I've got to have all this stuff the world says I need to have to be a man, to be a woman, to be a, a, a success, to not be a failure. If you're tired of all that, then crucify it. Crucify it. Nail it to the cross with Christ. Nail your glory and your ego and the world's definitions and all of that. Forsake it. And instead, chase the greatness of the king. And say, I want to take my footsteps and put them in his. And I want to be humble, and I want to serve. And I want to trust that everything he has told me is there at the end. For those that call him Lord and serve him humbly, I'm going to trust it's real. And I'm going to trust that the eternal reward that is waiting on me it far surpasses anything this life can offer. Forsake the greatness of the age, chase the greatness of the king. That's where contentment is found. Let's pray. Father, you have...